everybody. From crop tops to flip-flops, Ugg boots to zoot suits, butterfly clips and parachute pants, bell bottoms and bucket hats. Here at the Bethel School District Presents, we are nothing if not fashion forward, and it's time Doug and I take a look back at all the- Connor, Connor, are we really fashion forward? You're wearing Crocs and a sweater vest right now. I do like the Burberry scarf though. Well, thank you. And I'm sure we both made some questionable fashion choices throughout the years. Fess up now, Doug. What's some memorable hot couture faux pas you've made? <laughs> well, I wore the same thrift store Marine Corps camouflage BDU top my entire eighth grade year. I wore it as a coat every single day, and like a good middle school boy, I never washed it. That's quite the fit. Okay, Tommy Hilfinger, what do you got? Oh, as a middle schooler, I was rocking some size 42 Jenko jeans like you wouldn't believe. Okay, I'm gonna need to see some pictures of those after the show. This is, of course, the Bethel School District presents a podcast about the Bethel School District, and we're focusing on fashion today for a couple of reasons. In just a bit, we'll be talking about some big changes to our district's dress code policy. Connor, as you know, we have a few schools that have uniforms, a few that don't, and that's a policy that definitely needed revisiting. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But first, let's talk about running gear. Connor, when you go running, what's your outfit? Do you have a shoe sponsor? Doug, if you catch me running, it means someone has chased me off my comfy couch. Okay, well, you're not Boston Marathon bound, but one of our amazing teachers has just returned from her first Boston Marathon, and she's with us right now. Joining us today is Abigail Shelley. She's an educator in our multilingual education department, teaching at two middle schools, is that correct? Yes, I'm at Bethel Middle School and Cougar Mountain Middle School. And so you recently had a pretty special experience. You got to run the Boston Marathon, which I understand that's kind of the Super Bowl of marathons. What was that like, first off? I mean, that's a pretty amazing experience. Can you kind of walk us through the day? Yeah, it truly was amazing. I think I went in with low expectations just because, you know, when everyone says something's great, it's like, is it really the magic that they say it is? But it completely was. I mean, it is one of the largest um, in the United States, but it's also definitely the most historic. It was the first marathon in the United States, and it's run 26 miles outside of Boston, and you just run into the city, and people are lining the street the entire way. So yeah, for, for about three hours, I had people cheering for me the whole time, which that was truly the magic of it. And I just assumed when I heard that you'd run the Boston Marathon that you must be some hardcore marathoner. This must be your 50th marathon. But it's not. It was your second marathon. So your first time out, you qualify for the hardest marathon to get into. When did the idea kind of come into your head that I'd like to qualify for the Boston Marathon? And can you take us through your training a little bit? Yeah. So why I wanted to run the Boston Marathon. I competed as, at a D3 university for track and cross country and then also got into triathlon during my time there and was an All-American for that for NCAA D3. And then when I graduated in 2020, COVID had hit, so I got really into continuing that exercising and I had more time, so I just liked more the endurance piece of getting to run and, and having the time to do that. And during my second year of teaching, I decided that I needed something to train for because I was kind of getting lost in the motion with my exercise. And when I didn't have that direction, then I was like, you know, what what do you do? And my expectations for myself was kind of less. So I was like, you know what, if I train for a marathon, I might as well try to go for Boston. I knew the paces that I was running and I knew that it would be a push, but it would be an attainable push and um, it'd probably keep me motivated. So I ran in the Virginia Beach Marathon in March of 2022 and was five minutes under the qualifying time. Sorry, for, uh, so I was 324, um, qualifying time is 330. And so you have to wait until the 
registration opens and sometimes depending on how many applicants they have in, you won't even get in if you're under the qualifying time. So I had to wait for a little bit, throw my time in, and then I found out that I got in. So that was the, that was when my training started. What was that experience like? Because I imagine even though, I mean, you, you got the original threshold of, okay, I, I met the qualifying time and, and I imagine five minutes is not nothing. That's probably pretty good. You had to be feeling pretty good. But when you finally get the official okay from the marathon and you know, wow, I'm actually going to get to do that. How excited were you? I was super excited. I mean, it was definitely still up in the air if it was going to be a possibility. So to have that, I mean, I was super excited and I was like, all right, it's definitely time to get to work. So I, I hired a coach to start working with. And that's also, I just moved to the PNW in the in the past few months so do, knew that I was going to have some really dark nights <laughs> really really early on and yeah it seems so far away when you start training for a marathon it's like four months out so you kind of it's really delayed gratification so I wasn't even thinking I don't think about the end part when I was training for it but at that time I was also coaching cross country I had recently accepted a position to coach head track and field one of the head track and field coaches at Bethel High School so had a lot on my plate um, so I knew that I had to prioritize that training somehow and I have some crazy stories as to when I had to fit in some runs but I mean it, yeah the Boston Marathon itself made it completely worth it it's kind of like starting out and you know getting picked for the Yankees on your first time ever playing baseball. So where do you go from here? Is this do you, do you imagine that you're going to keep running marathons? Is it now now you want to win the marathon? What what's next? So I, I PR'd in Boston by seven minutes, which was super exciting. So um, I ran a three seventeen and. I I think I'm going to focus on some shorter stuff for a while. Coaching takes up a lot of my time. <laughs> um, and training for a marathon is just a complete, like, it, 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 eats, it eats all of your time. Um, so I think I might try to enter some local races, maybe some half marathons and 10Ks, and just see how competitive I can be in that scene. But what's most important to me is, I mean, coaching athletes all day. I think you always have to remind yourself how hard that is and how much dedication that takes. So if I'm asking kids to be at practice every day and give it their all, like, I, I need to be making sure that I'm holding myself to that standard too. And that's just a personal thing for me. So I think it makes me a better coach. So some things will definitely be on the horizon. Taking a little bit of a break right now, where my partner and I were hiking the Camino this summer. So we'll practice some walking a little bit more, but hope, hoping to get into some shorter and faster stuff. I imagine training for a marathon offers many life lessons. Was there anything that you learned as you were kind of testing yourself out there that now applies to you in the classroom helping students? Absolutely. I think a great analogy for marathon training, especially over the winter, is just putting a lot of work in in the dark. So metaphorically, that being, you know, people don't really know all the work that it takes to be a teacher. People don't really know all of what you're doing behind the scenes. Um, and people may never know. And people also may never care. Like, people might not know the amplitude of the difference you're making. But find those people in your corner who know how to support you through the hard times, who know how to ask you good questions about what you're working towards as a teacher or what kind of stuff you're doing in the classroom um, to make the difference in students. And then especially take time to celebrate what you've done. Um, so that really is what a marathon, the race itself feels like. If you've put in the work honestly, the day is just a celebration to showcase what you've done. So for teachers, whether that's an end of your project, whether that's you just prioritizing, making sure that you're highlighting what you're proud of that year, um, a lot of work that we do is in the dark and behind the scenes, but it, it, it can and it, and it is worth it as long as you give yourself the amount of respect that you deserve with how proud you are of yourself. So there are many, many dark nights when I was on the track and just took some moments to be like, you know what, Abigail, like I'm really proud of you. And I think that's a very 
deep form of self-love and self-appreciation when you're the one who tells you that and you don't need to hear that from anyone else. Definitely good lessons. And thank you so much for joining us and congratulations. And uh, yeah, can't wait to see what you do next. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, running a marathon requires some very specific clothing choices, some of which probably wouldn't be appropriate in a school setting. And that brings us to our next topic, school dress codes and uniform policies. Yeah, our board had asked for a review of our dress code policy because current policy had resulted in some inconsistent practices across the district. That request brought together our equity team and our elementary and secondary learning teams who jointly presented during a recent school board study session. We can all agree schools are responsible for ensuring that student attire, hairstyle, jewelry, and personal items don't interfere with the health or safety of any student, and they do not contribute to a hostile or intimidating environment for any student. Students also have a right to be treated equitably, of course, which can include being able to dress and style their hair for school in a manner that expresses their individuality without being scared of unnecessary discipline or body shaming. Equity specialist Darius Alexander spoke to that. If I can show up and be myself at school, I'm more comfortable, I'm more likely to want to show up to class, participate, and all those kind of things. Also, relationships. This is huge in getting feedback from teachers, principals, and then also just being in the building. Relationships between kids, sometimes in the morning it was you walk in and the first thing is take your hood off. And then that automatically creates negative interactions. And so principals are coming and saying, okay, what can we do about this? I'm starting off the day instead of saying, good morning, how are you doing? Welcome to class. It's take off your hood, let's check your jacket, whatever it might be. So making sure that we're fostering those relationships and creating positive environments where kids can show up and navigate everything that they may have gone through the night before with some support. So there were a lot of reasons to sit down and take a hard look at our district's dress code policy. And there's a lot of things at play here, wearing hats and hoods in schools. And we even have some schools that have uniform requirements. We do, and equity specialist Will Waverly talked about that. Our two middle schools and our elementary school with the highest percentage of black and brown students, why are they the only ones with uniforms? So that was a question that has been ongoing and that's an equitable practice. Either we have it for everyone or no one. So what does that look like? The other conversation is from students recognizing the student voice that the dress code is slanted towards female dress, right? You can't wear this, you can't wear that. And they feel like so much of what the policy states is directing and controlling the females. And there's not much saying anything about right males. So that was inequitable. As part of this process, the equity team met with students to get their feedback. They also met with staff and learned about how dress code can impact discipline issues and attendance at schools. They also did parent surveys. The new policy that the board is looking at reads in part that, quote, students' choices in matters of dress should be made in consultation with their parents guardians or caregivers. It's the policy of the Bethel School Board that the student and their parents or guardians or caregivers hold the primary responsibility in determining the student's personal attire, hairstyle, jewelry, and personal items. The new policy continues, it is the responsibility of schools to ensure that student attire, hairstyle, jewelry, and personal belongings do not pose a health or safety risk to any student and do not create a hostile or intimidating environment that disrupts learning for any student. And this is a policy that's going to have an impact all across the district. Here's Director of Equity and Achievement, Deb Carlman. It's a universal dress policy, so every school will have the same policy. There's always that student that transfers from one school to the next, 
and there won't be that challenge of trying to navigate what's okay here that wasn't where I was. As the board looks at this new policy surrounding dress code, they're also looking at a new procedure, which gets a little more detailed about what students can and can't wear. So obviously kids still wouldn't be able to wear clothing, jewelry, or personal items that display obscene or sexual words, display drugs or alcohol-related words, or display threats of violent conduct. They also can't wear anything that demonstrates a hate group association or gang affiliation, and that is something that actually brought up some conversation with the board. School board director Terrence Mayers said some of these broad topics could be tricky to implement. For example, gang affiliation. I come from you know California and, and, and gang activity, so I've seen the, the change over time. It's going to change. It could be shoes at, at a certain point, what color laces that you're wearing in your shoes. So who's going to make that determination? If, if our SROs are saying that, oh, it's this right now, gang can switch it up tomorrow and it could be a different color, a different way that you wear uh, your shirt, for example. The policy and procedure were accepted by the board for a first reading. No doubt there will be more conversation this summer before the updated policy is adopted and we begin implementation across the district. And in that process, district administration will be working directly with principals this summer on what that implementation looks like. So there's more to come, and this is a great step forward for our district. And with that new policy, we all hope students will be able to feel more comfortable in the classroom, which is awesome. Less distractions means better learning. It does, and that's especially important in a class like mathematics, as you and I both know, Connor. In fact, let's talk about math real quick. Middle school math, to be precise. Connor, we have two special guests with us. Joining us is Rebecca Matthews, middle school math teacher at Cedar Crest Middle, and Kristen Matheny, secondary math TOSA. Thank you both so much for joining us. Middle school math is an area of improvement for the district, and the school board's even listed it as one of their main goals for this year. Your team is looking at new ways to engage students in math class. Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. We are going from a sit and get type model to now we are engaging in student discourse and we're raising that level of discourse so that students are able to talk about the math, um, explain the math, and just really dive deep into the math. That's really interesting. Kristen, what about the planning aspect of that? Can you talk a little bit about it? Sure. We're um, really thinking hard about planning structured talk opportunities for students. These uh, structured talk opportunities lead to real equity of voice and equity of access for students. Rebecca, this all sounds really cool, but could you kind of paint me a word picture of what it looks like in practice in the classroom? In practice in the classroom, it's going to look like me starting off my classroom with an attendance question that is very low stakes. It might be like today was orange soda day, and so students are coming in and they're talking to their table partner or whatever I assign them to about which is their favorite orange drink. Do they like Sunkiss? Do they like orange juice? And so we've got some really low state conversations, and then we transition from that into talking about the math and where it's a little scarier to talk about it, but because we've built a culture where we do talk and we do converse, um, the kids are able to sit and talk about it. The other thing that we've really built into the conversation is making sure that the conversation is equitable so that it's not my top five kids who are talking all the time, but the fact that everybody is getting the opportunity to talk and share their thoughts about math, whether that's they're right, whether they're wrong, and then learning from those mistakes and going from there. That's really interesting. What would be your role during this? My role is actually more of facilitating that learning and getting that conversation going. 
the biggest challenge for me and the biggest transition has been I am moving around the classroom looking for kids who are talking about those ideas that I do want brought forward and definitely looking for those mistakes that I want brought forward so that I can pull those to the front of the classroom and have some guided conversation and making sure that kids are looking at the mistakes as much as they are looking at the right answer so that they're able to think about their thinking and be able to talk about what they're learning at that point. Okay, and Kristen, what's the expectation from students during all this? So students are doing the hard thinking. They're grappling with ideas. Um, They're not waiting for their teacher to tell them. They're really doing the the deep thinking. This curriculum, these structures are student-centered, so really it's all about what the students are doing, what they're thinking, and that teacher just supporting and facilitating. Rebecca, this sounds like it's kind of a shift in the way you've done business. What's this require from teachers specifically? For me, it's taking the time before I'm teaching to actually physically do the math myself, anticipating the mistakes that kids are going to make. The first year was really difficult for me um, because it took a lot of time to start thinking this way and anticipating what kids were going to do. Um, And I'll tell you that the second year doing this now, it's much easier, it's much more automatic, and it's just the way that I do business in my classroom now. But the, the first year was a little bit challenging. So in the end, why are we making these changes? How is it helping our students? Well, by having real set protocols and routines that are consistent and predictable for the students, it provides a safe learning opportunity for them. They can work with their partners. They're doing the thinking, and they feel more comfortable in making mistakes and learning. Thank you so much for joining us. That was really interesting, and we appreciate the work you're both doing. Thank you. Thank you. Connor, that was a great conversation, and that's going to do it for our show today. We started things off talking about fashion. Connor, I have to ask. Do you have your cap and gown ready for next week? I left the iron on it this morning. I'm sure it's doing fine. You might want to go home and check on that. I am going to need to see that photo of your size 42 Jenko jeans from middle school before you leave. Next week, we are talking graduation. You'll get to meet some of the great seniors that are saying goodbye to Bethel and hello to their future. We'll see you next week.